0: Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at mccormickcorporation.com.
1: Hey there, I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City here on WYPR, the monthly show that explores innovative approaches to Baltimore's most pressing issues and where we move the conversation from what's wrong to What's next? On this month's show, we're discussing food insecurity here in Baltimore. Nearly a quarter of all Baltimoreans are food insecure, meaning they don't have consistent access to nutritious food. Many of them also do not live near supermarkets with healthy, affordable options. Today, we're discussing the reasons people face food insecurity in Baltimore, and here are some interesting approaches to combating it, including Getting fresh vegetables in corner stores and using church spaces for urban gardens and farmers' markets. Later in the show, we'll talk to Maryland based journalist Cassie Chu about some of the ways people are pushing back against food insecurity and hear about an innovative approach that's helping elders and those who are homeless access hot food with SNAP benefits. But first, I am joined by the Reverend Dr. Heber Brown III, pastor of Pleasant Hope Baptist Church and founder of the Black Church Food Security Network, and Marie McSweeney Anderson, who is the assistant director of the York Road Initiative at Loyola University, Maryland. Thank you both for joining me. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Pastor Brown, let me let me start with you. Give us a sense of the challenges your parishioners are facing at the church and, and 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 your neighbors in in the York Road corridor, particularly when it comes to this issue, thinking about food insecurity.
2: Sure, sure. So I think that one of the things that that we saw and still see with many of our neighbors and members of our church is uh, difficulty with accessing nutrient-rich food, and and not just accessing that food, but like having a sense of ownership over the food environment that's aligned with what they really need and what we really need. I say we because I live in the community where I pastor. Having a good month, getting your food needs met, then a couple months later, bumping into a rough patch, uh, some life event happens, some curveball is thrown financially, and trying to figure out how, how am I gonna make ends meet. Not anything that's too different from what many people listening to us experience every now and then, no matter what your station is in life, You hit a surprise from life and you'll be in a similar situation where you're looking at Peter and Paul and saying, "Okay, who's getting paid and who's not? That was a lot of the challenge that we uh, were facing and that we were seeing even as we engaged other communities. You know, not not to push too far ahead, but a part of our impetus for launching the Black Church Food Security Network was to provide a greater degree of agency around the food environment so that people were not just held to the whims of big agribusinesses or big corporate food conglomerates. It was like they can pick up and leave a community and just leave you high and dry. We've seen it time and time again. And that's a feeling of powerlessness that overtakes people. And and it's like, listen, let's organize for power, not just organize for sweet potatoes, even though... (laughs) Organizing for sweet potatoes is fun, but the root of it is yes. we don't have power in this equation. How do we, how do we get some of that?
1: It's, it's one of the things we always talk about when we talk about what does it mean to have mobility from poverty. And, and oftentimes, it, it, it's, people will simply look at an equation of, of income. You know, if your income rises over a certain point, that you then are alleviated from poverty, but it ignores this idea of autonomy mm. and power. Absolutely. Because those things, the, the lack of autonomy, the lack of power, are things that oftentimes are synonymous with poverty.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, too, and I'm so glad um, uh, Marie and I are here together because we come from a community that has a main road, which was a historic, the the redlining uh, boundary. York Road is a historic redline. And and so when you talk about that, you know, the income level, but there being other factors, we live in a community that has that Very much so right in front of our face that depending on what side of York Road you're on, so much of your life can be different from the people just across the street.
1: Marie, along those lines, what does food access look like in Baltimore versus other areas, both around the state of Maryland and also other areas in in, in
3: the country? I'd like to share a little bit about York Road and Mm -hmm. what it looks like in particular. The area where we are is Govins. And so as Pastor Brown was talking about, York Road is a major dividing line of race and class. And our focus area is from the city county line down to 39th Street. And so along this three-mile stretch of corridor, there are five fast food chains, eight convenience stores, 15 carryouts, five of which are liquor stores, and zero grocery stores. And so when we think about Baltimore, that's not a unique story. Mm. And that's what needs to change. And I think a lot of other jurisdictions are doing really creative work. I don't think one or the other has it figured out. But I look to other examples like Tulsa, Oklahoma, or even Oakland, California, where there's a lot of community-based and people-based infrastructure being put in place around policy. Um, When we talk about power, how are we looking at community accountability as this space to move us forward together?
1: Those stats are staggering.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. We're telling everyone every single day how we feel about their future by simply looking at how we're asking them to live. What environments we're asking them to exist in, what water we're asking them to drink, air we're asking them to breathe, food we're asking them to eat. How do we help people understand that this is not just a practical conversation, this is a moral and a psychological conversation that we have to have?
3: So I often talk about food access being the sexy work. I think it is an example of a system that has gone wrong. And so when we talk about food access, it's just something that we can see. We can't necessarily see affordable housing. We can't necessarily see fair wages or jobs. But food access, we know when we're hungry, right? And so if we're thinking about this in a holistic way, food access is one piece. But the other piece is when it comes to moral and, quite frankly, in our community, racial division. Food access is just one piece of the puzzle.
1: Dr. Brown, what role does that food access play, especially as you're having conversations with other congregations, other neighborhoods? You know, you realize this was not a York Road thing. Absolutely. This was not a certain section of Baltimore. This, yeah. is, this is something that really exists. And you watch how the heat map mm-hmm. between where this exists and our communities. It's a bright red Absolutely. In, in in the heat map. How did you then think about the level of coordination that was going to be necessary and why this was a collective problem?
2: Sure. I think Maria is exactly right, that that uh, food access is is the more appealing kind of front door and on ramp mm-hmm. to a lot of these issues. And it is an important part. It's, it, it is an important piece of the whole. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, as I travel the country and connect with others and I see these same same patterns over and over and over again, I started to think about, OK, well, if this is a systemic problem, then how do we work together to create a systemic solution? Now, some people will say, well, then you work with elected officials and you get laws passed and you start food policy councils or you join them and you advance legislation that puts things in place. And yes, I think that also is a part and a piece of the puzzle. It wasn't the one I was drawn to mostly, though. I think everybody has to kind of know where their genius shows up and where their their passion is and, and where that lines up. And for me, I'm most passionate about organized asset mapping and organizing the things that people already have in their hand to address whatever the problem is. And so what I knew with churches was that churches own a whole lot of land and churches have kitchens that are largely underutilized or unutilized Monday through Saturday. They have organized people, organized money in the poorest of black neighborhoods in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. There are churches with assets already in hand. And it is a mistake, I think, of policymakers and others to overlook churches as anchor institutions. Mm -hmm. We are many times have been around longer than, you know, whatever other building that just got. than the anchor institutions. (laughs) We are in the anchor institutions, right? So I've been been at tables where, you know, talk around the anchor institutions comes up and nobody's thinking about the faith base. The synagogue, the church, the mosque, 100 years old. And, you know, and so I just got excited about, okay, well, how do we line these assets up? and get them in the direction of addressing this issue around uh, food apartheid. And and really, I just want to ke- give big ups to Karen Washington, a co-founder of Black Urban Growers. And Karen really pushed us to move away from food desert language because of the implications on the community, because it's also oftentimes lobbed into a neighborhood from those that don't live there. And it's propped up by an assumption that, the free market if we just have more m- grocery stores that really gets to the root and that fixes the problem mm-hmm. when it really doesn't get to the root of the problem and so she pushes the term and invites us to consider food apartheid which better recognizes the layers of challenges that comes with food insecurity and so for me it was like listen i know churches i know the assets that churches have I speak church, third generation black Baptist preacher. I can mobilize and organize these black churches around this issue and it can have a lasting effect. I mean, one of my nightmares is that I give so much energy to the black church food security network, helping to connect black farmers with black congregations, helping churches to to, uh, grow on their land. And then when I die, the whole operation is gone. Mm -hmm. That's a nightmare of mine. And so I wanted to root our work in an institution that has shown the ability to be resilient no matter what's going on in society. And, and, that was, and that had a sufficient degree of autonomy, that black folk managed it, owned it, whether they washed windows at Hopkins or whether they were elected officials or whether they were teachers at some university. When we come together on Sunday, it's not Dr. So-and-so and whoever, it's brother and sister. And I needed to put this work in that kind of environment because it gave me hope that once I'm gone from here or where, whoever the charismatic individuals are, if it took to the DNA of that congregation, it was going to be around for a long time.
1: It's one of the things I really love about this idea of, 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 a, of a food apartheid mm. is because the damage of apartheid, the danger of apartheid, wasn't just simply the consolidation of individuals and the draining of resources. It was an absence of ownership. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. It was the idea that that someone else determined everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. about your existence, mm-hmm. everything about your daily movements. And the idea of a food apartheid mm-hmm. is a fascinating way of thinking about what exactly it is that we're dealing with. Mm-hmm.
2: I like it too because it's, it's a heavy word. Yes. When I've used it in different presentations, it gives people a pause. I've even seen some clutch imaginary pearls. <laughs> but it's, it's I, I like it for that, you know, because yeah. we should we should look at this situation and look at these dynamics. And have some pause about it, yes. because as you alluded to, you know, in your question you asked a few moments ago, um, you were speaking to the severity of, you know, this issue. How do we, how are we, the wealthiest state and the wealthiest nation, and have these issues? Where, you know, when you look at the issue of food, the United Nations said, well, food is a right and has a whole definition about this. This is a human right, and how is the wealthiest nation not able to show sufficient gains on a human right that should be a cause of concern for everybody? I'm
1: Wes Moore and you're listening to Future City here on WYPR. I'm talking to the Reverend Dr. Heber Brown III, pastor of Pleasant Hope Baptist Church and founder of the Black Church Food Security Network and Marie McSweeney Anderson, assistant director of the York Road Initiative at Loyola University, Maryland, about food insecurity in Baltimore and beyond. We have to take a very brief break, but do not go away. When we come back, we'll continue this conversation. Plus, hear from journalist Cassie Chu, about some of the ways that Washingtonians and Marylanders are pushing back against hunger, and about how some jurisdictions are making it easier for people with SNAP benefits to get hot meals. We'll be right back. Hey there, I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City here on WYPR, the monthly show that explores innovative approaches to Baltimore's most pressing issues. This month, we're talking about why hunger persists in Baltimore, Despite being in one of the richest states in the Union. Joining us to discuss this is the Reverend Dr. Heber Brown III, pastor of Pleasant Hope Baptist Church and founder of the Black Church Food Security Network, and Marie McSweeney Anderson, assistant director of the York Road Initiative at Loyola University, Maryland. And so, Marie, talk to us about Fresh Crate. what exactly that is, and what the goals and the aims are.
3: Of course. I think I should start a little bit before Fresh Crate and share a little bit about how we got to the idea. So Loyola University started a listening survey in 2010, even before the initiative was created. And that's how we got our focus areas. So we focus on youth development, building civic capacity, and strengthening the commercial corridor of York Road. And I'll say food access started out as a little baby focus area and has grown to become one of its own. Because the first thing that residents asked was for a farmer's market and for real direct focus on food access. And so... That was an easy lift for a university, right? We have the tables, we have the chairs, we have the credit card machines. We were one of the first farmers markets in the city of Baltimore to be able to accept SNAP, federal nutrition benefits, because of the infrastructure that Loyola had. So in 2011, the Govanstown Farmers Market begins but it's only four months out of the year, right? So we had to reevaluate how are folks accessing produce for the rest of the year, the other eight months of the year. And so we had a 2013 food access study. And what we did was go to the food pantry, to the schools, to the folks who are perhaps struggling to access food on a regular basis. And I think the conversation around that time was, well, if people have transportation, they can access food. And that's not what we found. And so we were really at the forefront of changing the conversation around affordability. And so instead of talking about transportation, we're on the red line, the current red line. Folks travel, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people travel on the red line every single day. Folks have transportation access, but once they got to the store, that affordability factor wasn't there. And so at the same time, nationally, the conversation around healthy corner store networks was really picking up. DC had started one, Philadelphia. And so we joined with the Baltimore City Health Department and the folks there working on West Baltimore and creating a healthy corner store network there. And what we ran into time after time was a barrier of getting the produce to the store. And so we evaluated what's available locally? What are large-scale access points to produce? And like a brick hit us over the head, obviously Loyola University is getting thousands of pounds of produce on a daily basis to feed the students. And so we really evaluated the resources that Loyola University have and then how do we direct that into partnerships with our local stores, the stores who have been around for 15 years, 20 years, the the stores where folks walk in and the store owner knows your name. And what we found is a lot of store owners were already carrying small amounts of produce. We just, they didn't have a accessible and regular way to get produce into the store. Lay's, Pepsi will come to the store, take the order on a fancy computer, and then show up the next day with your order. Nobody was doing that with produce. And so in 2015, we created a system where stores order from Parker's Dining Company, which is Loyola's Dining Company, and we deliver the produce to them. And it really wasn't until 2017 that the program really took off because we had to marry this affordability piece in. It's not just enough to provide access, right? If folks can't afford the food in the stores, They're not going to purchase it. And so there were pieces of produce rotting on the shelves, which is the exact opposite of what we were trying to accomplish. And so we partnered with the local food pantry that serves just our zip code and a few other neighboring zip codes to provide coupons. This model was based upon a coupon program that we have with the Govenstown Farmer's Market already and Waverly Farmer's Market. And from there, the program exploded. And I'll say we have redeemed over $30,000 worth of coupons. And since 2015, over 15,000 pounds of produce has gone into the community.
1: Wow. Now that you've hit that, what exactly is the aspiration? What's Next Steps?
3: So Next Steps for Fresh Crate is obviously continue funding for the coupon program. I would also love to see the coupons and the produce being purchased happening at a more local level. And so Heber and I have had conversations about how can the Black Church Food Security Network be the wholesale retailer for Black churches or Black farms so that we can ensure that our money stays locally. So when we're talking about the economics, Parkhurst Dining is part of a multinational corporation. That funding for the produce is going back to that corporation. It's not staying in our local community. Mm -hmm. While the corner stores are locally owned, only one of our corner store owners lives in the neighborhood. And so when we're thinking about this food system, it's really taking a lens on the economics and ensuring that this program supports our local community.
1: It's interesting about how do you go from taking, you know, an idea to scale and then from scale to essentially changing systems,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? I mean, I, I think about the, the, the vegetable garden mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, that you created with, you know, with your, with your congregants who, are, who helped spark the idea behind that where, well, in fact, you know, before I even go there, can you tell us about that? <laughs> tell, us about, tell us about the vegetable <laughs> garden first.
2: Sure. And so our church, Pleasant Hope Baptist Church, started to garden uh, about ten years ago now, when initially I wanted to create some type of partnership with a, a local market, but the price of the produce was so high, I was like, "Nah, we can't do that. Our church cannot partner, in, in, you know, in this way." And I didn't want to go down the right of, route of another food charity program that you know our church is a part of. I think charity is great for emergency, urgent situations, but charity can become toxic and can corrode human dignity when it becomes a long-term solution. Mm. I didn't want to leave my church down that road. And so I had some what I call divine discontent bubbling up in me when I left out of that market, walked back near the front door of my church and saw this 1,500-square-foot patch of land that we weren't utilizing you know, for any ongoing purpose. And so I came into the church and I said, Hey, y'all, let's start a garden. Let's grow our own produce. And one of my blind spots was exposed because I came to the church and I said, let's do it. And I thought the young adults of our church were going to come alongside their youngish pastor and we were going to lead a food revolution. But the young adults were not (laughs) the core and the base of what got that garden going. It was my seniors, the seniors of the church. I've jokingly and with love called them the AARP club. They got together (laughs) and I had overlooked my blind spot was many of the people in my church came up to Baltimore during the great migration Mm. and I've studied it. I've looked at my family came up to Baltimore, but I never connected this dot that these were people who grew up on the farm with 10 or 11 brothers and sisters who know that, who know agrarian living. And yes, they came to Baltimore and they worked at Bethlehem steel and got other jobs, but that wisdom from working the land and living on the land was still within them. They were the ones that stepped up and started to develop this 1,500-square-foot foot garden. And now that garden produces 1,200 pounds of produce every year. We take that produce inside the church kitchen, process it, clean it up, and then make it available to our members and our neighbors as well. That's how our church garden started. And as I studied that, I said, hmm, other churches also have land, seniors, kitchen, a uh, group of people that come like clockwork every, few, you know, every seven days and this whole piece around cooperative economics. I mean, offering on Sunday is basically just cooperative economics and practice. Right. And so that's how I saw the dots connecting. And that's how our church got in it. Like, wait a minute, this we might have stumbled upon something here that does not have to be just a good thing for Pleasant Hope Baptist Church. But it could be something that mobilizes churches all over to say, OK here's our part, and here's how we can move things forward in this way around taking what we already have and making a difference.
1: And how's it doing now?
2: It's doing awesome. We have a cluster of 11 churches in Baltimore now that are growing. And so we'll go to a church and say, hey, pastor, we see you have some land, or they'll call us. We come alongside them, and I serve almost like an extension of their ministry, and we help them get going. We give them up to $1,000 of seed money for seed, soil, and lumber. We publicize that we get volunteers college students and others call us and say hey can we help we route them and so we help them start the garden and here's our thing we're not in the business of helping to create more silos in the religious community and so it's like listen we'll come and help you only if you recognize the other churches as a partner and we all work together and so we do bulk buying of seeds or bulk buying of, of soil and I drive my pickup tr- truck around like a pollinator and we go from <laughs> church garden to church garden that clustering started here in Baltimore But then pastors and colleagues and other churches started calling from other places. And so now we have clusters of churches uh, working with us and seminaries, I might add, in Ohio, in Virginia, in North Carolina. And we have Sprouts now happening in Tennessee and in Georgia. South Carolina just called recently as well. And so the AME denomination, for example, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, a bishop will call. And say, I want all my churches to be a part of this. Uh, Those type of calls we're getting down. And so it's really growing in a very organic way and and a way that really centers and celebrates um, relational organizing. We're really big on that. Ella Baker is like a patron saint of our organization, Mm -hmm. distinct and separate from the Kingian model of a charismatic male leader. What we really, our magic and secret sauce is really in knowing Sister Patsy Appleberry, Sister Maxine Nicholas, mm-hmm. Deacon Bill Roberts, and saying, y- y'all need to meet, because y'all are the magic. They're not the ones that'll be, that'll be interviewed on TV, they're not the ones who'll get headlines in newspapers, but i become their biggest cheerleader because they are the ones that make these gardens work at their churches, and then connecting them all together is just, is just powerful.
1: Mm. Maria, what do you think the role of, of examples and models like these are? in addressing the challenge of, of, of food insecurity and healthy food. And also, w- what role do you think zoning regulations play
3: mm, in all yeah. this? Yeah. I think I, I oftentimes get frustrated when people look to this model as the end-all be-all, right? Mm. I think that the work that we do to share this model with other institutions, Baltimore as a city of eds and Mids, right, this could be a model that could work in other communities. I often talk about the stores that we work with as snowflakes. Our community is so diverse, and our stores are so diverse, each one has a different and specific need, just like every different church has a different and specific need. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I really go back to community accountability. And there are also really basic things that should and should not be done. And I'll give you an example of something that happened recently in Govins. So for as long as I can remember, there has been a family dollar at the corner of York and Woodburn. Just this past year, we got a Dollar Tree less than a mile south and a Dollar General less than a mile north. That's three in less than a three-mile stretch of the York Road corridor. And if you've done any research about dollar stores, yes, What you can purchase there is a little bit cheaper, but it's marked up at a higher rate. Mm -hmm. So you're really losing money. And these stores are in urban and rural low-income areas where folks are already struggling to make ends meet. And so other jurisdictions are doing what's called dispersal ordinances. And so I look at Tulsa, Oklahoma, who does have a dispersal ordinance now, which means if there's another store already located the dollar store or the convenience store may not locate there. And I also look at other store models that are in wealthier districts. So CVS and Dollar Tree both have models of their stores which carry produce. Mm why does Baltimore not incentivize that here? So I think that zoning and tax incentives are a really important piece of the puzzle because regardless, we're within this food system where grocery stores and multinational corporations are a part of that. However, the power that we can leverage with our own city government and the people power that we have here on the ground plays an important role in where these stores can be located or not.
1: And we, we talk about the role of both the city government, but also it's the state and it's the federal government too.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: the proposed changes on 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 SNAP uh, and proposed eligibility changes, you know, and, and 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 full transparency to all of our listeners, um, you know, the organization I run made a public comment about it, mm-hmm. about looking at what how dangerous that would be mm-hmm. to the communities that we fight for, and the communities that we that we that we serve. Uh, these policy decisions that are made on every level around us. They matter mm-hmm. and they have a significant impact. What becomes then the role of the organizations? Think about the Black Church Food Security Network. Think about, you know, our our, our, our anchor institutions in, in, in the city and beyond. What becomes their role, not just in terms of serving the individual very human real need, but making sure that the policies that are being created
2: remember the very human real need that people are facing? mm mm-hmm church gardens are wonderful, but they are often, not but, and they are often demonstration sites, Hmm. right? You're not going to feed a whole community with a church garden. And it's never, it's not even the intent. In fact, we needed more volume. People, our congregations were asking for more and wanted some greater variety. And so we connected with black farmers in North Carolina and Virginia, and we send trucks down South to pick up fresh, I mean, nutrient-rich produce and, and Meat's not pumped up with steroids and everything else, and we truck that stuff into the city, right? And so we're clear about the limitations of a church garden or even a community garden. There's very, very hard limitations there. The thing that I love about what I'm seeing is that uh, people from different congregations, even people from different religions who connect with us and work with us or different ethnic and racial backgrounds who link with our work, it's a powerful moment when the light bulb goes off and we figure out that we can work together to get our basic and fundamental needs met. Mm. Once that light bulb goes off and people say, wait a minute, we grew this together. We processed this food and that kitchen together. We each got a share together and every household and every family is leaving with what they need. And we did it largely with the strength, ingenuity, genius and innovation of the people right in this room. Once that clicks, then the next thing that comes up is, well, what else can we do together? If we could grow broccoli together, if we could do, we made uh, elderberry syrup together and went through this workshop together in the church kitchen, what else can we do? And that is what I'm so excited. I want to see, and we're working toward the creation of that avalanche. The Black Church Food Screening Network is a snowball, but it's a powerful snowball in the spirit of people who have long been told that they got to wait for somebody else to do it for them once that snowball starts moving though that you ain't gotta wait roll up your sleeves come on we got something God is our, our power and our strength and we're gonna lean on each other then you get organized and now elected officials or candidates watch out right policy you better be careful so the sweet potatoes are organizing principle yes. it's the thing <laughs> that brought us to the table but the next thing is the farm bill the next thing is uh, propose changes to SNAP. The next thing is, and I think sometimes in our advocacy community, and I come from that, that background as well, and w- those who work in Annapolis or work in D.C., they come to the community too late. Yes, The hearing is next week, and you come to Pastor Brown and say, Pastor, we need to get a, a busload of members from your church to come down for this hearing next week. That, absent a relationship, You're trying to extract something from the community and people know when they're being used for something that they really don't have stake in. And so what I love about what we're doing and the way we're doing it is we won't have to wait. In fact, we'll be inviting the advocates to our table Mm. to say, hey, listen, we don't have the time to be all them hearings that y'all at. Mm. But here's what we're doing and here's what we need. And here's the kind of bill we want to happen. Now, let's walk left foot, right foot, right foot together in the direction of getting something done. Mm. This is beautiful. And let me tell you something.
1: <laughs> Sweet potatoes. I'll take that absolutely anytime
3: <laughs> you want to push on it. <laughs> uh, uh.
1: I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City here on WYPR, and I've had the absolute joy of talking with Reverend Dr. Heber Brown III, who is the pastor of Pleasant Hope Baptist Church and the founder of the Black Church Food Security Network, and Marie McSweeney Anderson, who is the assistant director of the York Road Initiative at Loyola University, Maryland, about food security here in Baltimore and beyond. Bless y'all. Thank you for what you're doing and look forward to uh, to uh, collectively making some action happen in our city and beyond. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank Thank you. Thank you. We have to take a brief break, but do not go away, because when we come back, we'll meet Michael J. Wilson, director of Maryland Hunger Solutions, and talk to him about how federal, state and local policies are affecting access to healthy, affordable food here in Baltimore, in Maryland and around the country. Welcome back. I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City here on WYPR, the show where we shift the question from what's wrong to what's next. This month, we're talking about why hunger persists in Baltimore, despite being in one of the richest states in the union. Future City producer Mark Gunnery sat down with Michael J. Wilson, director of Maryland Hunger Solutions, to discuss just that and to discuss youth food insecurity. Here's the conversation.
4: I'm Mark Gunnery, producer for Future City. And now we're going to talk about how federal, state, and local policies are affecting access to healthy, affordable food here in Baltimore, in Maryland, and around the country. Joining me to discuss that is Michael J. Wilson. Michael J. Wilson is the director of Maryland Hunger Solutions, which aims to end hunger and improve nutrition and health for Marylanders. Michael J. Wilson, thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. So far in this episode, we've been talking about food insecurity in Baltimore City. How does Baltimore fit into the bigger picture of food systems in Maryland and around the country?
5: Yeah, So I think it's important to remember that Baltimore is not an island. Uh, we live in a lake of the state of Maryland. We live in a sea. That's the mid-Atlantic region. We live in an ocean. That's the United States. And so all of those things have impact on us, both federal policy and state policy, even things that happen in local areas around us impact us. And so focusing on Baltimore is helpful, but you have to understand it really is not an island. Mm-hmm. Many Baltimoreans
4: rely on the SNAP program, which is often called food stamps, to supplement their incomes when buying food. Last year, we learned that the USDA would be changing the eligibility requirements people need to meet in order to collect those benefits. So what are those changes and how will they affect people here in Baltimore?
5: Right. So in Baltimore, there are about 160,000 people who use the SNAP program, and that's about 60,000 households. So it's a Big part of the city. Uh, It's a big part of the city not only for those folks who depend on those programs to be able to feed themselves and their families, but it's a big part of the economic engine of the city when you have millions of dollars coming in every month that gets spent in our grocery stores, our farmers markets, and our corner stores. And so I think what we've seen recently at the federal level, unfortunately, is policy that is intended to reduce people's benefits and reduce participation in the program. There have been three regulations in the last year which will have a direct impact on Baltimore City. The first is the able-bodied adults without dependent proposal. And so this is a a remnant of the Welfare Reform Act of the mid-1990s, one of the most contentious, hard-fought pieces. And what it essentially says is that if you're an able-bodied adult without dependents, someone between 18 and 50 who's not working 20 hours a week or more, um, you could be limited to only getting... SNAP for three months in a three-year period. So it's a very draconian piece. And so Maryland lost its statewide waiver um, to be able to not have anybody participate in ABOD in 2014. And it's been rolling through the state but for a long long time, Baltimore City and the western counties of Allegheny and Garrett and the Eastern Shore were exempt. They were waived by the state of Maryland. That's as it should be because of the difficult economic and transportation issues in those areas. Well, the Trump administration has decided that they wanted to really change that. And so they promulgated a regulation which essentially says, you know, you're not gonna be able to waive those areas anymore Maryland. And so as of the 1st of July, it's entirely possible that between 10 and 15,000 folks in Baltimore who are currently getting SNAP will no longer get it. That's not good for the city in any way, and it's not good for them, but we're trying to figure out what we can do to try to ameliorate that. The second proposal is one that's a little bit wonky. It's a little technical, but it's called the Categorical Eligibility Provision, and it's one of the ways in which states make folks eligible for SNAP. I think the simplest way to explain it is it's like, if we know you're eligible for these other poverty programs like TANF or other programs in the state of Maryland, we believe you're also eligible for SNAP, and so we make you eligible. And this is a program that's been used by about 40 states in one form or another for about 20 years, but in their greater wisdom, the Trump administration has decided that it's a loophole, and they don't want states be able to do this, and so they've changed the way way you can use categorical eligibility in a way which is going to probably cost about 7.5 million folks across the country their benefits they've also admitted belatedly that about 950,000 kids from across the country are going to lose automatic access to free school meals. We're going to see people losing their benefits. And it's going to be seniors. It's going to be disabled folks. It's going to be families with kids. It's going to be kids losing school meals. And that's not good for us at all either. The third proposal is called the standard utility allowance. And when you get SNAP benefits, it's always a a decision that's made based on your facts and your situation so it's your income it's your household size and it's your household expenses and so for most folks their utility allowance really reflects what they're paying for their heating or air conditioning and maryland has used a, a, an allowance for that four years um in their greater wisdom, the Trump administration has decided that they want to nationalize this. They, they see no reason why someone in Garrett County should have a different process than someone across the border in West Virginia, or someone in um, Cecil County should have a different um, calculation than someone in Delaware, or why someone in Hartford County should have a different calculation in Pennsylvania, when the truth is, all of those folks are Maryland residents and so they have a Maryland tax system, they have a Maryland benefits system. It really should be a state determination. So between the able-bodied adults without dependence provision, the categorical eligibility, and the standard utility allowance, there's been a concerted push from the federal level to have people lose their benefits and not be able to have access to food. And that's gonna be a real problem for food insecurity uh, in Baltimore City and all around the country. Maryland Hunger Solutions focuses on meal debt and meal
4: shaming in the state schools. What is meal debt and meal shaming, and how do you think the state and local
5: jurisdictions should be responding? So we found a situation in Maryland a couple of years ago where a young girl was going through the line, first grader. She would go through the line. She'd get to the end of the line. They would throw her lunch away and they would give her a cheese sandwich. And she didn't know why. She didn't understand why this was happening. Her mother didn't know it was happening. She just knew that all of a sudden her daughter was very hungry when she would pick her up and that she was suffering from constipation and other challenges. And when she found out that they thought her daughter had a meal debt. She was extremely unhappy. This is a woman who is a veteran, but who's on SNAP. And so we want to make sure that meal shaming doesn't happen. We've done a a scan of systems across the state of Maryland and looked at all the things that are happening, the, the good and the bad. We found systems where they would have kids wear bracelets or stamps. If they had meal debts, we found situations where school systems would not forward academic records Um, for kids applying to college if they had meal debts. We also know that there are school systems that are facing real issues with meal debts. And so there are school systems that have upwards of $100,000 in debt because there are families or kids who can't or who won't pay their meal debt. And so we're working with the legislature now to try to address both of those things so we can reduce instances of shaming, but also try to help school systems recoup those costs where they can by using the leverage of the federal nutrition programs for free and reduced meals. I would add that this is not an issue for Baltimore City. Baltimore City participates in the community eligibility provision, which is a powerful and great program, especially for schools with high poverty populations. So every kid in Baltimore City gets free breakfast and free lunch, and you don't have to worry about when you get to the end of the line whether you have to pay.
4: A ban on retailers distributing single-use plastic bags will go into effect next year in Baltimore. You're concerned about some of the potential unintended consequences for people facing food insecurity. What are those concerns? And are there ways that the city can address them before the ban rolls out?
5: Right. So this is one of those really complicated issues that seems simple on its face. People who are experiencing poverty have a stake in the environment that they live in. They also have a stake in making that environment better. But when they propose doing a fee on bags, there's also a disparate impact on folks who are experiencing poverty. If you go to the store and you use your SNAP benefits or your WIC benefits, you can buy eggs and butter and milk and bread, but you can't buy tampons. You can't buy toilet paper, you can't buy aspirin. You can't pay for bags with your benefits. And so we're facing a situation where folks really have a, an impact here. I think there are numerous ways to try to address this. When Denver did a similar bill, they essentially exempted SNAP and WIC consumers from having to pay those fees, as did Seattle, as did the city of Chicago. And so I think there are good models that Baltimore could have learned from and could still, if they choose to. But I think the the challenge that we put the cost purely on low-income consumers is one that I, I think is regrettable. It should have been avoided. I've been
4: speaking to Michael J. Wilson. He's the director of Maryland Hunger Solutions. And Michael J. Wilson, thank you for joining us today.
5: Thank you.
1: To close out today's show, we're talking to Cassie Chu. Cassie is a reporter video producer, and digital journalist. Cassie, thank you so much for joining us today. We're excited to talk to you.
0: Excellent. I'm excited to talk with you.
1: So you've written about Food and urban farming in Washington D.C., but you've also written about a pilot program Maryland legislators approved last year to address hunger. So I, I want to be able to start there. So in in 2019, Maryland passed legislation that's creating restaurant meals program, or as they call it, RMP, which is a, which is a means of combating food insecurity. What exactly is that program, and how exactly does it work?
0: Yes, in 2019. Uh, Maryland Governor Hogan signed a bill into law that authorizes Maryland's Department of Human Services to begin the process of implementing a restaurant meals program. It's a food assistance program, one of the dozen or more food assistance programs offered by the USDA. And it's an obscure program. Uh, Not many states have taken advantage of the program, but it has been on the books since the 1970s. The long-standing policy for SNAP benefits include restrictions on purchasing foods that have been prepared with SNAP benefits. The purpose of the program is to allow people who are eligible for SNAP benefits to be able to purchase prepared meals at restaurants. The goal of the program is to help alleviate food insecurity for three groups of people. People that are over age 60 people with disabilities, and people who are experiencing homelessness.
1: And so if we think about it, and I want to turn attention to to Washington, D.C. a little bit, because you wrote really about an interesting farmer in in D.C. Who is Gail Taylor and what makes her farm, which is called Three Part Harmony, so unique?
0: Gail Taylor is a much-loved young lady who transitioned from a rising career as a diplomat to become a farmer. Well, one of the things that she did to help her adopt a community in D.C. is spearhead the development of legislation, which is known as the D.C. Farm Bill, that allows people that are interested in urban farming to partner with owners of vacant lots and start gardens. And the D.C. Urban Farming Food and Security Act was passed in 2015. And what it does is it allows uh, owners of vacant lots to receive a 90% tax impatement when they partner with an independent farmer who wants to uh, start a farm on the property.
1: So how did the creation of the farm bill, uh, of the D.C. Farm Bill, how did that make it easier to create urban farms in Washington, D.C.?
0: Well, that remains to be seen. Uh, the legislation was passed in 2015. The regulations that, that allow the um, tax abatement have just been written. And so D.C. food advocates are eager to see how this is going to uh, result in greater access to food for its residents. They're interested also in uh, the potential of rooftop gardens springing up in the city because, you know, D.C. has limited access to land. So that's uh, one of the ways that they see that the policy may help to alleviate food security for D.C. residents.
1: So you've been listening to Future City, and I've been talking with reporter, video producer, and digital journalist Cassie Chu. Cassie, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you very much.
1: As we close up this show, just like every single episode, I want to leave everyone with just a few thoughts. So if we have discussed a basic element, a basic right, is food. Without that, we can't learn, we can't grow, we can't live. And it's not that we don't produce enough food, because that's just simply not true. The truth is that we produce more than enough food. It's asking, what are we doing about waste? What are we doing about excess? And who gets prioritized? We are thankful that so many, like the guests we've had on this show today, have chosen to get creative. They have chosen to start farms. They've chosen to start community gardens. They've chosen to pool resources. They've been chosen to enlist the support of neighbors in order to make sure that our communities are fed both physically and also emotionally and spiritually. But we shouldn't have to rely on that. Our policies make altruism necessary. And in our future cities, that should never have to be the case. Future City is produced and edited by Mark Gunnery. We welcome your feedback. Also, feel free to contact me directly on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at I am Westmore. If you want to learn more about some of the people and organizations we heard from today, or if you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit wypr.org and look for Future City. Under the Programs and Features tab, Future City airs here on WIPR on the third Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. and then again at 9 p.m. So until next time, for 88.1 WIPR, your NPR news station, I'm Wes Moore.
0: Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat, more information can be found at mccormickcorporation.com.